This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Joshua Morales Podcast. All right, so we are on the podcast and we are live with Ruben. So Ruben, give us a little bit of a background and, and what did, how did you get into what you're doing now? Well, let me say that I, I'm a former uh, elected official. I did that for 14 years. I was a mayor, mayor pro tem, city commissioner, EDC, president with director duties. More importantly, Josh, I want to say that I was a small business person, still am. Been doing that for about 30 years and, and I take a lot of passion in saying I've been a volunteer for about the same amount of time, 30 years. So I, I spilled over into the, if you want to talk the social media realm, if you will, where you expose your life and you're vulnerable to all, to all ends. Uh, probably around 2008 through my, my wife who encouraged me to get on Facebook at the time. And of course I resisted because, oh my God, no, I can't be on Facebook. Everybody will know what I'm doing. And uh, she uh, encouraged me to do that, but I used it as a platform like it's used now to road closures, water issue, water breaks, uh, emergencies, uh, all kinds of situations that information needed to get out fast, I used Facebook back in 2008. Right. And it, it was extremely effective. People people uh, warmed up to it, although it, it did give me some criticism from, from a small town, a small conservative town. Overall, it was very, very useful. So you, you were talking about this off air, and uh, you were talking about being hesitant about going on to social media. Why were you hesitant about it? Well, when you're growing up, for the most part, in my age group, I'm 56 years old. Anybody, anybody probably 38, 40 plus, you're grow, you're grow, you're taught to be humble, to be, uh, uh, to be more uh, thoughtful of people rather than yourself. This thing about taking selfies and talking about your actions and and capturing your life was not something that was easy or was common in my in my growing up, my formative years. My father taught, taught me how to work hard and how to how to give back to your community, but it definitely, definitely didn't include the facets of sharing your life in intimate and not so intimate moments. Because let's face it, anything you share on social media, if it's your life, it's gonna be intimate, whether it be a birthday or whether it be a special celebration or a heartache, because people share all sorts of things on social media. So, uh, you know, getting into this wasn't the easiest of things. I had to retrain my brain, but I wanna give credit to, to my wife, she is my my coach, she's the instant professor, but she teaches me, she gives me insight, and we evaluate each other, and without that, I don't think I would have been able to you know, come as far as I have. And how long ago was that that you started? 2008, 2000, I wanna say very, very early 2008 when I got into Facebook. I got into Twitter probably about 2011, and I got into, into Instagram probably about 2011, 2012. Uh, I wanna say that each platform is different, but of all the platforms, the one that's opened the most door for me has been it's been Twitter, without a doubt. I mean, Josh, I've done interviews with the CBC Canadian Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, with the BBC across the pond. I've done uh, stuff with you know on New York. I was on Border Live, and that they found me on a Google search and on my social media. And the first time I communicated with them was a direct message on Twitter. 
And uh, that's not so uncommon. When I tell people, they tend to make like a surprise face, but that's the world we live in now. Yeah. Nobody calls anybody. Nobody's gonna send me an email, much less open an email. But if you get a, d a direct message like you and I did, you're gonna answer it because yep. it's it's the real world now. That's true. So you're saying that Twitter's your strongest platform that you're using right now? It's the one that's opened the most doors for me. I wanna okay. say that my strongest platform without a doubt right now is Instagram. People will get a real look of many facets, facets of my life. I am 56 years old, I, I have sons, uh, I, I have a, a great wife, a great life, I have adventure like this right here. I mean, who else you know, gets an opportunity to come with yourself, who you're pretty accomplished in the social media world in Rio Grande Valley, and get to talk about you know, what has made them the, the, the person they are in, in social media and in life. It, it's actually a, a considered a blessing to be able to do that. But that it's easy, absolutely not. We talked off, also off air, how challenging, challenging it is for, for young people and especially for old people. And since I deal a lot with what we, I call late adapters, people that are older in their 40s who are in small business or trying to brand themselves, trying to spread their message. Because let's face it, uh, Josh, newspapers, magazines, billboards, that's, that uh, type of marketing is, is, is suffering because social media has all the eyeballs. I mean. You know, I think, what is it, Facebook and, and YouTube, I think each have like 1.5 billion users. That's crazy, that's the a, number is like, insane. It's a crazy amount of people, yeah. yeah. So right now, how are you leveraging Instagram stories to, to talk to your potential clients or potential audience? What I do on Instagram and on Facebook for that matter, I am a video creator, I'm a self-taught video editor. I, I learned the hard way through, through trial, error, and YouTube. And it was hard. It was very hard. I, I tell people all the time, it, it's a skill now that I appreciate. And it's, it's called, I call it going down the rabbit hole because it encompasses your entire main, your, your main lines of thinking. You don't, I'm not left with very much creative and energy after editing, but uh, I'm leveraging it to let people know that, you know, you can be 50 or 40 or 60 or 70 and still get in the game and do it effectively if you have passion for it. I, I'm a big proponent of using the many tools that your smartphone offers. You don't have to go buy, if you want to do video, you don't have to go buy a $1,000 camera or $2,000 camera. You can do it with your iPhone. And what I do typically is I teach people how to do it. You look at my IGTV and you'll see I give people lessons. My, my, one of my more popular uh, videos that I did that got a lot of response was the three C's for Instagram and social media. That's right, I saw that. Can, can you touch on that? Well, I, it got a lot of good traction, a lot of good feedback. And keep in mind, the feedback I get, Josh, is not a like on, on, the, on, on the video itself, or even a DM, it's when they see me. Yeah. Hey, I saw that one, that video you did about, about talking about confidence, and I saw that video you did. The three C's, real simple, and, and my wife really likes my philosophy. I like to break things down. I come from government, and I come from business, and even every time that I was there, I was all about a method and a template to do something, a protocol. So I thought of a way to get people started. It came from a real story. I was at, at, a, at, a, at a fundraising event and this gentleman who's a very, very good, accomplished chef, he's, a, he's an outdoor chef, he barbecue-wise, and he came to me and says, Ruben, I have, an, I have a problem. I want to spill over into Instagram and social media, Facebook, and I don't know how to do it. I'm, I have accounts, but it's, I don't know how to do it. So I got back, got to thinking, and I came up with the three C's for so Instagram and social media. And the first C is confidence. You have to be confident in your message and you have to present it that way. If you wanna be wanna be taken seriously in what you do, be confident. Don't talk like, well, I'm not sure, I don't know, maybe this, no, hey, this is the way I cook, this is my dry rub. 
in video creation, hey, I use, I use iMovie, but you know what? I'm very careful with my edits to make sure I tell the right story. Confidence. The second one is content. I'm a big believer in, in content having variety. If you're in business, the, the temptation is, Josh, to put ad after ad after right. ad. If you're selling cars, you're going to put a lot of cars. If you sell real estate, house after house. If you sell furniture, you're going to put pictures of the furniture. People don't want that. Right. When you buy a magazine, people still buy magazines. Sports Illustrated doesn't just have pictures of sports. It has pictures of travel. It has pictures of, of, of apparel. It has pictures of sport. It has, it has a variety of, of information. Also, where your content's concerned, it has to be wholesome and genuine. Be real. Don't give them some phony shim-sham of, of an appearance because when they meet you, it's going to be a disappointment. And when that happens, it will translate into your social media presence. And the best thing you can do for yourself is be yourself because right. that's all you know how to do. And the last one's my favorite. I call it the great equalizer. And that one is consistency. Let me repeat that. The great equalizer is consistency. If you're lacking in, in your content ability, if you're lacking in your confidence, if you're consistent, if you're just out there hammering away, beating that drum, somebody's going to hear you. And the thing that, that, uh, that consistency allows you, it gives your content a chance to get better and it gives your confidence a chance to grow and get stronger. Right, no, I, I completely agree. So we were actually talking about how a lot of people won't like or, or engage with certain content, but when you're out is when they tell you something. Yeah. I think also that that happens to me quite a bit because uh, I post out so much stuff and they're like, well, I did see that, but they won't necessarily like it or engage with that. Can you touch on that, how, it, how that's happened in your area? It, it's, a mind, it's a mindset, um, especially, in, and you're younger than I am, you're in your 30s and I'm in my 40s, but you get anybody, again, who's 30, late 30s on plus, they're not going to like pictures, they're not going to like your video, they're not going to comment, they're not, but they'll look at it, even if they look at it silently, but they're going to look at it and they know that they'll know your content. I have had so many incidences, like the, my three C's, where, I mean, I got okay views, you know, whatever shows there, but I've had people that really stopped me and said, hey, I, I saw that video, and you're right, I, I got to work on my confidence. I've been doing this for 15 years, I should be more confident with my message. It, it's crazy how much people will look at but not acknowledge or give you that acknowledgement on social media. Now, for example, you get one of these millennials that'll post a, a picture of, of, of a beach umbrella and they get 479 likes yeah. and they'll say it's, it's a beach umbrella, you know? But that's the world that they grew, they did grow up with a smartphone in their hand and they did grow up understanding, you know, these visuals and it's okay to interact and you're not, you're not, I'm gonna put it, you're not exposing yourself if you hit, if you hit the like button. Right. It, it's not. But teaching anybody that later in life is very difficult. So I don't, I don't even encourage people. I said, if it's not in, in, your, in your being to go out there and like and encourage and comment, then, then don't. Do it whenever it's comfortable. But most certainly, understand one thing. I think you and I can appreciate this. If we put something out, out, out there, whether it be a video or whether it be a piece of content, whatever traction you think you're getting, multiply it by 10 times. And that's probably the type of attention that that, 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 that either video or content is getting. Eyeballs are looking at it. It's yeah. just not the kind of eyeballs that are clicking on like button. Yeah, exactly. So going back to uh, the social media world, right? Um, I, and I asked this to a couple of people before. Do you think that it's a good thing that the social media world has given a voice to everybody, regardless if it's right or if it's wrong? Yes, I think it's good. Um, Go ahead and touch on that. You know, it's, it's, we have a freedom of speech, and you can, you can uh, say a lot of things has limitations obviously you know you you have a free you have the freedom to say what you want to say but you can't scream fire in a crowded theater 
the reason that I think it's a good thing is because you don't know where the next brilliant idea is coming from. It could be from somebody you agree with, and it could be from somebody you don't agree with. I want to say I was in government, Josh, and I learned more from my detractors than I ever did sometimes from my supporters because they, if I built a park, for example, or I was part of a group that built a park and they were like, oh, you should have added uh, elements for, for disabilities. I was like, you're right, I should have, yeah. you know? But it came as a heavy criticism, but you gotta take that criticism and turn it into something that's constructive. So I think what social media does, it does give everybody a platform. But keep in mind, you can give everybody a platform, not everybody's using it. True. And the ones that use it and may sometimes make the most noise uh, are the ones that, that are trying to spread the message with, with, more, with more gusto. But the, the idea that everybody can get on something like this and start creating an idea and uh, giving life to whatever lives in their mind is a very good thing. And after all, if you don't like that content, block and delete them. Yeah. I, I encourage people, I mean, people my age, you know, like I said, I keep on saying my age, I'm 56 years old, but people that are older are like, well, you know, they say this guy was criticizing me and he used profanity. And, well, block them, delete yeah. them. If you want to be, be nice, you can send them a message saying please don't. It's, that's one thing that I don't accept on any of my pages, profanity. Talk to me in, in, in good, solid, uh, basic, respectful uh, terms, and I'll always, I'll, I'll always respond. Right. Even if it's criticism, but don't, don't swear to me. That's just not the way that anybody should conduct themselves. And I, I think that's my upbringing and also how I conducted uh, myself as, as an elected official. I would allow any kind of criticism, but I would not allow profanity. Right. So that, that, was, that was my no-fly zone. So the fact that everybody has the ability to go out there and create their their wonder wondrous uh, uh, dream of, of, of a message, you know, power to you. Get out there and do it and see who listens. And if you don't like it, you know what? Tune out. Yeah. No, I feel like we can talk social media literally all day long. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> you know that's what we we dive ourselves into. And and you know day. what? Let me tell you what the the, dich the dichotomy of who you and I are. You're 37. I'm I'm 20 years older than you are. Yet. I, I think we're pretty much level because you yeah. try certain things, I try certain yeah. things. You know, we both are into capturing images. We both into spreading a certain message about whatever it, we're passionate about. And uh, you're right, we can, but that's how social media or Instagram or Twitter or whatever you care to, it can bridge these huge gaps because all of a sudden, you're not 37, I'm not 56. We're, we're at the same plateau trying exactly. to do the same thing yeah. because we, we're passionate about what we do. Yeah. Have you ever gotten a backlash from certain things that you put online? Oh, of course. What was the worst one that you Oh, the worst backlash. <laughs> <laughs> I think one time I made a snide remark uh, about uh, these, uh, these decorations, that, not decorations, but this uh, ear piercing that, that young people do where they make holes in their ear. Yeah. And I, I just I made a reference saying that you know my father would have probably said you know just you know, cut the whole ear off if you're not going to use it the right way, <laughs> and I made a reference like that and I think I, I did have somebody stop me in Walmart because they were uh, uh, I think they're they were more edgy on that side and saying that I was being disrespectful to people that have other ideas and I agree with it. I said you're right I shouldn't have said that yeah. I, I'm I'm always if, if I if I you know I said it in, in, in a joke sort of way. But sometimes humor does offend people, and she and she was offended. So I, I apologize. I'm sorry. You're right. I'm not, I don't have that chip where I'm like, oh, I'm right. I, right. I made I made a poor joke, and you know what? It, the one thing about something that you do that's a misstep, it gets fixed up an awful lot and really quick when you say I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I didn't. So yeah. now if anybody wants to like make holes in their ears or holes in their head, you know, go right ahead. Yeah. Sometimes I find that strange because uh, we, we do have the freedom of speech. We can post whatever we want, but also social media. 
makes us aware of how we speak, of how we talk, and, and right? To, to be politically correct yeah. most of the time, right? Because the last thing I do is, is I, I rarely ever get into politics. And I just feel like if you're in politics, it's just an easy target for you to go after and for everybody to come after you. I, I got attacked uh, many, many times when I was an, an elected uh, official, many times. How, uh, how do you deal with that? Um, respectfully, uh, calmly, and uh, with logic and information, and common sense. Yeah. Let me tell you, let me repeat that, common sense. That's so lacking in government is just the basic understanding of what what works. Let's get, a, let's get away from the philosophy of of it has to be this way or it has to be that way. Everybody has an opinion, but I use my common sense to guide me and to show me a path uh, that I feel is is productive and pragmatic in, in the world. And you're right. I do spend a lot. I did spend a lot of time being politically correct when I was mayor. I, it took me a long time to get away from that, where I can be more expressive about my beliefs. Because I, when when I was mayor, Josh, I had a belief in Rugani City. The population is about sixteen thousand, give or take. And I believe that my voice was resonating for 16,000 people. So I always tried my best to make sure that I would ride that line very carefully that I was trying to represent as big a cut of those 16,000 people. Now, fast forward to the year 2019, that's not so common in some circles of government where you, you, you hear uh, different types of, of conversation at different levels, especially the federal level. And actually, I'm not going to get into that. but. As far as I'm concerned, you know, you, if you represent more than yourself when you're elected official, what you do, you need to be respectful of the entire population, not just what you believe to be correct or to be right. No, I completely agree. So you were the mayor of Rio Grande City, correct? Mm -hmm. So the next topic that we're going to jump into is uh, border crisis. Yeah. You were in New York earlier, right? I was in New York uh, November of 2018, and I was there through the end of December, yeah. All right, so you're not a dummy when you talk about these things. You actually know what you're I, talking about. I, I consider myself a border expert, and I will tell you that. I, I don't mind saying that at this point. Growing up in a, in a small town right next to the river, Josh, I mean, right here where we are, McAllen is a good four or five miles, six miles, whatever it is. I mean, I grew up a uh, three-minute walking distance from the river, and I just thought that's the way everybody lived. Yeah. I don't know any better. So all these immigration... Uh, uh, challenges and all these scenarios, we've I've lived them. Everything from human traffickers, drug traffickers, coyotes, immigrants coming out of the woodwork to come and ask for everything from a few bucks to a, to a glass of water. I mean, I lived it from a very early age. So when people talk about immigration, I I feel very confident that I know exactly what I'm talking because I lived it. Yeah. Not knowing. Now I'll tell you, the one who brought it to light was my wife. Because she moved to Rugani City with me for a while, and she was saying, you know what's going on here is not, it's not normal. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's normal. She said, no, it's not. She says, I can, she's from McAllen. She says, I can give people in McAllen don't know anything what's going on and don't have a firsthand uh, ability to have knowledge of this like you do. Because, you know, immigrants from Central America, from Mexico, from China, whatever, yes, I experienced some of that at some capacity, you know, during my time uh, living in Rugani. I, I live in Mission now. But uh, for 53 of my 56 years, I, I lived in, in a small town, a border town, whose river was a part of our DNA, and still is. I tell people, when you grow up next to a river, the river runs through you and never leaves you. Yeah. Uh, I, I speak fluent uh, uh, English, Spanish, and border. Yeah. And I, I say that proudly now. 
Uh, it's interesting because uh, this past weekend, me and my wife went to uh, to to Mexico because we're we're returning our permisos. So we're about to go out of town, and they were expired. But on the way back, we actually saw the bus that brings back the people that were deported back into Mexico, and they're all in their their handcuffs, and they're also their legs are handcuffed too. It's a pretty startling thing to see. It's just literally right there. We're just in line, and then they drop them off, and then yeah. they go about their their. Is that a common occurrence? Yeah. Because yeah. So I'm, like yeah. I said, I'm not really from this world, so I kind of need somebody the, like you to the, educate me the, about these things. It has become more visible, but that process, uh, they were probably me Mexican residents. Uh, the first, I, I had a two-part education in, in immigration. The first part for the most of my life was that the immigrants were going to be from Mexico. They were all between the year, ages of 16 to maybe as much as 50. And I want to say almost exclusively we're coming here for work. Okay. That was a good chunk of my life till about 20, mm, probably about 2012 when I saw a little bit of a shift. Uh, but that's what they were. They were young, strapping, hardworking, strong men looking for a job, looking for employment, looking for economic opportunity. You know, Mexico is paying $35, you know, a week and here you can get $9 an hour. So, I mean, it's real simple. And that that uh, whole facet of, of my experience was one and it did shift it absolutely shifted in the year 2014 I, I was ground zero for the first uh, wave of Central Americans that came into the United States through uh, through pretty much the same means you're seeing now and yes there were women and yes there were children I'll never forget I went to a guy named Gil Kolokowski Kolokowski I'm, I'm master his name but he was just coming in, the Obama administration, they advised everybody to go to the McAllen Border Patrol Station, the famous one now that everybody tours. Yeah. And uh, he came in and uh, he was just talking about immigration. And I went because I believed in re regional representation. So I w when I was invited, I would go to anything that was regional that was beyond my, the realm of my small town. And when they were done, they said, hey, you want to take a tour of the facility? And I was like, yeah. There was four of us and there was a room of about 30 and uh, four took the, the tour. And this was March of 2014, 2014. And uh, when we go, and if you've never been in there, they have like windows, you know, they're, they're tempered glass windows, but they're windows where you can see in the cells. And I looked inside and I saw women and children. And I was floored. I was, I got the, 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 off, the, the Border Patrol agent and said, hey, what are, what are women and children doing in there? And she said, he said, Mary, that's what we're seeing now. Wow. So. My eyes got this big, and of course, I went, I went back to Revenge City talking about that. And the next thing I know, of course, I had friends who were in Border Patrol, and they were like, Oh, yeah, we're seeing that now. I want to say that was in March. By about April, the first uh, immigration crisis of 2014, the one that I saw firsthand, I saw unfold before my eyes. Wow. They were Central American, they were from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And you could tell, Josh, because they were different. Their mannerisms were different. They were more brash. They were they were less respectful of, of, of the mores and, and the common uh, habits of, of the Mexican immigrant. The Mexican immigrant would hide. These wouldn't hide. They were looking to give themselves up. Interesting. And uh, they would hide under cars. They would go into HEVs. That was a big problem because they were going into private property. So I, I, my phone was ringing constantly because they had my number and they were going to call the mayor and say, hey, get, get, a, get a grip on this. They're, you know, they're, they're, I just saw one almost get run over by a car because they're running across busy streets. Wow. The their understanding of, of of the border was non-existent. So I just want to say it was kind of very much the Wild West, the first wave, and 
I will tell you that when National, I worked with National Guard, uh, DPS, Ranger Recon, the DPS, obviously, Border Patrol, Customs. I worked with all those facets of those law enforcement agencies because my town needed that help. Josh, I had uh, three patrol officers coming, covering 10 square miles. And if I told you that those three officers spent during that time of about April of 2014 to about September of 2014, they would spend hours upon hours under a tree babysitting immigrants. Really? Waiting for border patrol was overwhelmed. They, they, they only had so many border patrol agents, so they were to make a call and say, well, we'll be there in 45 minutes. We're, we're in Fronton, which is way west uh, Star County. So I would stop with my officers and I'd say, what are y'all doing? Well, we can't leave them alone, so we're going to have to wait for border patrol and they're, 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 they're about an hour away. Wow. And that was, that was nerve-wracking for me because who's patrolling the streets, who's patrolling the, the, the shopping centers, who's patrolling the school zones? Exactly. I only had three officers. So when DPS showed up and National Guard showed up and, and all these, I, we embraced them because they, they helped us do our job because we didn't have to take care of the immigrants. We still did, but we were allowed to do what our, what our public safety requirements were, which is keep our community safe. Yeah. So when you see this crisis of today, Josh, and you're, you're going to see me criticize government, they uh, maybe couldn't predict it, but they should have had, had the ability to foresee it, undoubtedly. Because everything's happening now, I saw in 2014. Really? The women, the children, yeah, the family units, the, the uh, confusion on how to handle them. Where are you going to house them? How are you going to house them? Is that just because it's the sheer number of people that are coming in? What happens is, is that the, the coyotes are very savvy. They look for loopholes in immigration because it's good for their business. I promise you they're making five times as much money on human trafficking as they are in drug trafficking right now. Because every person that you see, all those people, they came through corridors that are controlled by the coyotes and controlled by the cartels. And I guarantee you they paid anything between two and up to $10,000 per person. Wow. And I understand that children now are, are coming at a higher premium, especially if, if they're unaccompanied because they're, they're high management, high risk, and they're in a lot of trouble. So if I told you that and you see these raw numbers, just do the math. These are millions and millions and millions of dollars that these cartels are, are, are cashing in on because they do control the border region on the Mexican, absolutely without a doubt. Yeah. The corridors that matter, they control. Why, why do you think there's more women and children now trying to get into the United States? Oh, because that's a, that, that's a, that's a free ticket to the other submarine, you know? That, yeah. gets, that gets you on board. You know, the... Uh, what they found was a loophole that if you were uh, had children with you, you were allowed to stay, and you automatically put in a process to be taken out of here. So what the reason seeing women and children is because that is the loophole. How do you handle? How do you handle them? Nobody knows it. And the, the problem is that the federal government hasn't been proactive enough, or even reactive enough, to come up with legislation to deal with this. This is squarely on their on their uh, on their clock, and I'm talking Democrats and Republicans because those are the ones that make the laws. The laws are not working. So if you see women and children coming across the border, it's because they know that they're going to get preferred treatment and and be allowed to stay here. Wow. Which they are. They're not being sent back. They're the ones that if you come in with 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 a family unit, you're allowed to stay here for two or three years until you're. Your trial date where you go before a judge and that's another the whole system is lacking and it needs to be rebooted and when people tell me that immigration cannot be fixed you know Josh I'm older than you 
I, I'm a big fan of the Ronald Reagan uh, days because I, he was my president when I was a teenager and, and, and in my, into my 20s. And I want to tell you that in 1998, 1988 about, I'm sorry, 1988 or thereabouts, he passed comprehensive immigration reform for 3 million uh, undocumented that were here. And he did it with a Democratic congressman and a Democratic, Democratic Congress under the leadership of Thomas Tip O'Neill. So when people say that immigration cannot be fixed, I disagree completely because it's been done. It was done 30 years ago. And when he did it back then, he did it as a starting point to keep on fixing it. But the wheels fell off and everybody forgot. So immigration uh, can be fixed, should be fixed, needs to be fixed. And you know something, the, the uh, template that, that that's necessary is there. People know what it is. The lawmakers know. But for whatever reason, they're not wanting to come to the table to find out the solutions that, that need to be set forth. So for people like me that, that aren't too aware of, uh, like you were just talking about the, the perfect example of how to fix immigration, what, what is that? How, how, how would you explain that to somebody like me, that 1980? Well, you mean fix immigration? Yeah. Well, okay, first, let, let's come up with reality. There's about 11 million undocumented that live here. Well, that's before this last wave, so I don't know what it is, but it was 11 million. The, the simple fact of the matter is, uh, Josh, the FBI can't find the 10 top most wanted people, and they're not going to find 11 million undocumented immigrants. So that's the first realization. They're here already. Uh, the second uh, thing that you, you also come to, come to grips with is that they came in through a broken system that the United States provided to them. We, it's not like they came in, you know, uh, under, under, under the circumstances of knowing that, that the government here well, had a very tight immigration uh, policy that was very hard to maneuver. They came because it was ambiguous. Right. And they were looking to capitalize. So going back, the first thing you, you realistically do is come up with a way to, to identify these 11 million like they did back in 1988, 1987. And uh, I want to say it the way it sounds. They, if they've been here for an X amount of time, let's say five years, six years, you know, you're going to see the reality of, of bringing them into the system because they're here already. Right. They're, they're contributing, you know, whether we want to admit it or not. So the first thing is those 11 million that are out there, you know, bring them into our system with certain conditions. And a part of, a condition that people forget is like, they broke the law, yes, but make them pay a fine, make them go through a process. Now people say, oh, you know, the, they're going to they're gonna come and vote. And you know what, let them apply for, for voting rights whenever they feel it's necessary. You know, you can't even get American citizens to vote. All right, so right. when people just think it's an issue about trying to bring in a voting block, I disagree because you can't even get people that are rich to vote or ready to come out and vote. But a part of the fix is, I don't say it the way it sounds, you know, people say build a wall, build a wall where it's necessary. Like when people have told me before, when I did interviews before, I say, well, do we need the wall? And I would say, where? And it would send back, well, well, along the border. Well, where along the border? Well, in the valley, well, where along the valley? Right. And I'm not being, I wasn't being cute. I was being realistic that the valley has about 260 miles of, of, of border region, of border area, and it's about 125 miles straight across. But keep in mind that the river winds. It winds, you know, like a snake. It goes up and down in all sorts of ways. So when people are telling me build a wall of sticks, first tell me where. If it's an area that typically has uh, a, a river area, a river basin that's very shallow where you can walk across, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. But if it's an area that's right next to a community that the river is anywhere between 12 to 16 foot feet deep with strong currents, what more wall do you want? 
Because right. that river is, is a great reason to not try it and you'll look for that, those pockets. So again, put a, put a wall, if you will, or a fence. It's really a fence, not a wall. Put a fence where it's necessary, but more importantly, bring in the te high technology that we have already available to us that just hit our doorsteps just years ago. Like, I don't know if you travel west, but you travel west, you see something called TARS, Tethered Aerostat Radar System. Have you seen no. Have you seen the little blimps? Have you seen them? Mm. Oh, yeah, 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 yes, I have. Okay, they're called TARS. Now, the irony of those is, first of all, they were recycled uh, pieces of equipment from the Iraqi Afghan, uh, Afghanis, uh, 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 Afghan conflicts. Interesting. Now, they didn't just bring them off shelf. Here, here they are. Yeah. They're, they're recycled from, from the war, the first thing. And the second thing is, the first one, I went to that ceremony, it was in Roma, Texas in 2014, the summer 2014, when they brought the first TARS to the valley. And you go, oh wow, it's so great. You research on those, on those, uh, in those instruments of, of detection, they've been around for 40 years. Hmm. So and why it's surveillance, right? Oh yeah, yeah, they, they go up in the air and then they have high coverage surveillance where they can see, I mean, I've, I've seen what they allow me to see, you're basically looking at like a video game where you see people moving through the woods. You can see it all. Wow. So yeah. like infrared cameras. And everything. Like everything's there. But the problem is that technology only came in 2014. Why, did, why, why didn't we have it before? Yeah. And, you know, we don't have cameras along the border. People think we have cameras. We don't have cameras along the border. Uh, I, I saw the process of them trying to give me the cameras as a city so we can maintain the cameras. And I'm like, you know, don't give me the cameras. Well, that's your responsibility. Yeah. So the basic technology that high technology that needs to be there is not there. So if we put a combination of, again, uh, a wall fixture where we need it, where we need it, if we bring in high technology surveillance equipment where it's necessary, because it is, and you bring boots on the ground in big numbers, I promise you that our immigration situation would be under control. However, here's the however, nowadays we're, you're dealing with a wild card, which is how do you handle family units? That's where legislation comes in. Interesting. All right, give me one second. Jesse's downstairs. I'm going to bring him up. Okay. And then we'll continue. I got a couple more questions. podcast but Josh had to go downstairs but this is what the podcast room looks like actually pretty cool setup I am in the middle of a podcast with Josh and uh, he was sitting back there he went downstairs but I figured I'd take this opportunity this break we had to show you his kind of cool setup here kind of
I'm gonna move this right here. You know this guy, right? Just throw it, man. Just put it up there. What's up? What's up? What's up? Take a nap. Grab a seat. Close the door. Yeah, please. Alright. I guess I might as well do it. Hey, Josh, say hello. Hello. How's it going? Hey, what's going on? <laughs> I'm in good company. I'm in good company. Yeah. Alrighty. Let me know when you're ready, Ruben. Let me know when you're ready, Ruben. Okay. That's pretty cool. It's Mike's place. Mike Velasquez. Oh, really? You know? Or no? No? Heard his name. Jesse, what are you on Instagram? Jesse? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jesse. Yeah, I don't know how you made it. Shouldn't be Jesse. There you go. Yeah. Um, Mike. What does he do? He has an online radio. He has like three or four different shows. Oh, okay. So I and I also think I'm not sure what else he does. But yeah. he started this, the podcast room, and yeah. I just jumped on yeah. it. Like, yeah, let's try it. Wow. So. All right, you ready to do this? Yeah. All right. So here we go. So we were talking about the border, right? Border crisis. But I kind of want to go into uh, what we're, what digital media is nowadays. So Google, Apple, Facebook—they have so much data on everybody. It's kind of scary, right? But I heard that data is a new oil. So it's it's overtaking oil. Like it's it's the, the number one asset now that, that anybody can own. How do you feel about these huge platforms having so much data on us? Yeah, it, it's it is scary, I will tell you, and it's something that I don't think anybody's well, again, about ages is used to. It's it's something that we're gonna have to adjust. Yeah, a long time ago buddy somebody said something about Big Brother watching. Big Brother has never been had a bigger set of eyes than today, and in spite of the fact that you have all this technology and all this this data, so many small things you know don't get detected. And I, I can go on and talk about examples of, of people putting stuff online that that might be a danger to our communities and not being detected. It's crazy, but um, the fact that we're so out there and uh, living off the grid per se has become ultimately so difficult. Uh, it's just the world that we live in now, Josh. It is. You know, once upon a time, radio was high technology. And then it got replaced by television. And then television went by the wayside now with social media and Lord knows what's next. Uh, roll with the punches. And yeah. here's what I tell my clients when they talk about social media and 
their fears of, of privacy. It's show as much as you want, but don't show. You, you have complete control over the amount of information or what information you're going to share. Right. So share what you feel comfortable sharing. Share enough to be a little bit vulnerable, but you don't have to share everything. Yeah, you can craft your story to see to to the way you want it to be shown to people. Well, you can craft it, and the only danger with that, not danger, the only thing that I tell people be careful with, don't make it if you don't make it seem overly glamorous, and don't make it seem overly uh, not like you. You know, stay genuine to what your message is and to who you are, and you'll find success, success on social media on, on on many platforms, but. You have to give them that experience if they see you on social media and they know who you are and they meet you in person. If it's the same person that they see, then you did it right. Right. So we're talking about data. And I saw, I ran across, across a Facebook post the other day where somebody was uh, was typing, it was like, a, a, I think it was the nine most wanted list. And somebody said, let's get on that list. With the mass shootings that are going on now, it's, it, that sucks, right? It's, it's a... Uh, the world social media has given us is, is very vulgar, it's very open to everybody. But when you have people like this, what do you think should be in place as far as like monitoring these people or as far as like reporting these people? I think that's super important. Well, uh, you touch on this something, it, it's, uh, let's go to the mo most recent issue we had in uh, the mass shooting we had in El Paso. Uh, let me just send a great prayers to, the, to, our, to our fellow border community in, in, in El Paso. I have friends over there. Uh, it's, it's, it's horrific. As you know, as sophisticated as we get, and our abilities to monitor data, if you will, seem to be impressive. We miss the mark when we should be capturing data that's again dangerous to our community. This uh, uh, shooter, this gentleman, whatever his name is, I don't want to even mention his name, but um, he did go and he posted a manifesto online, and. You would think, well, you know, well, he posted it. That's not enough reaction time. Well, it's not. Well, you know what? I, all I can tell you is go post a copyrighted song on Facebook and see how long it takes for them to drop your, your video. Oh, yeah. It'll, it'll be less than a minute, minute and a half maybe. So if, if Facebook can have that, that ability, I don't see why the federal government can't have that ability also to detect an emergency quickly and to have law enforcement officers in the right places to protect the community. Because as much as, as we feel that uh, uh, social media is a great big wild world, but it's also a world that, that needs to be monitored and the federal government needs to do a better job of watching the danger that could come to us via social media. So what do you think about like like Mark Zuckerberg, right? It's a private, well, kind of private company. He, he wants everything to stay on Facebook. He wants to control it. He doesn't want any federal government in there. What do you, how, how do you feel there should be, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you think that Mark Zuckerberg should let the federal government come in and use that data for these type of things? Or do you think the private company should have access to keep all that stuff? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, and not just Facebook, but it's a matter of time before federal government takes over. It, it, it's inevitable. You see all that data, you see all, all the, the streaming of information, and I, I, I'm surprised the federal government hasn't made an initiative yet to try to get into that game and to basically take over Facebook. I, I think that Facebook and social media has turned into any lar something larger than even Mark Zuckerberg ever imagined. Right. I, think, I think it's something that, that has grown to the point now where the federal government is gonna wanna take over because they're gonna say, well, we're, we're better keepers of the data, which is questionable. I don't know if they're really efficient at anything. The federal government is not the best business person 
or the best monitor or the best uh, uh, resource to have when it comes to having a, a real good model for success. I tell people if you want to ruin something, get the government involved. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, that's why I am a big believer in, in, in uh, small government and let business run itself and you know keep restrictions to, to a minimum. But uh, the fact that all this data is there and Mark Zuckerberg has this, this huge, immense control, not just him, you have Bezos with with, I mean, there's Amazon, a, Amazon yeah. even, even Elon Musk, and, and even he said it, that government, it's going it, to get involved. Because it, I think they feel a responsibility to do that. But one thing's for sure, Zuckerberg hasn't done a very good job of protecting uh, the privacy of his information. We all know what's happened and how it happened and uh, how, you know, not talk conspiracies, but how foreign governments got involved in sensitive information to sway, possibly sway opinion. Yeah, the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal. Yeah, yeah. It, it's real, it happened. So that's why I'm saying, you know, it's not like you know Zuckerberg's done an amazing job, he hasn't. I just, I, I have very serious doubts that when the government takes over, they'll do any better. So we've been talking about a lot of stuff. I wanna go back to, to your full-time job that you have now. It's digital marketing, social media, you're teaching a lot of people, you're always busy. And yeah. you and your wife are always busy. Is there a or such a thing as work-life balance? Because um, I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is such a thing. I haven't found it either. I, I want to tell you what I, I work at two in the morning. Sometimes it, it's sort of like you know I, I can schedule my day. But if you're going to be in this business in any capacity of success, if you're not putting 12, 14 hours, you know, a day for quite a few days, then you're not doing it right. Because one thing's for sure, you know, and I know, even to produce what you're doing right now, it's not just hit a few buttons, talk a few, say a few things, oh, it's cool, then put it on there. Yeah. There's a degree of, of, of preparation that goes to it before, during, and after. And uh, in what I do now, I never imagined I would be in it the way I am. Uh, this whole thing of, of, of getting involved in this type of a business for somebody like myself, not because of, of uh, my background, but because of my age, I, I'm, I mean, I run around sometimes with all these social media influencers and these people like yourself that, that do podcasts or that do video creation, I can name names, and they're all way younger than I am. I mean, way younger than I am. And uh, they get a kick out of me sometimes because they see me. But uh, one thing I will tell you that you have to dedicate a lot of time if you're going to be in this business at this level. Yeah. I find it fascinating that the internet has literally opened doors to for everybody to do anything they've ever wanted. Anything that they've ever wanted. I, I find that fascinating. It is, and at the same, same time, I want to use, I'm not, I, my wife's a big fan of, of, of Gary Vee, mm -hmm. and uh, that's why now we've gotten more into teaching and giving people, we'll give you the information, and Gary Vee always says you can give people all the information, 5% are gonna use the information you give them. And in social media, it's a lot like that. Like I tell people how to create video or how to do whatever platform they want to. That way they can maximize it. That way you don't have to go and hire somebody. But let's just face it, it's like doing the lawn. I, t I tell people it's like doing the lawn. I can do my lawn, but I'd rather hire somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a hassle because uh, social media to be done correctly is very, very time consuming. Right. It's not just, let me take a few pictures. No, you better get a white backdrop and get, get some lighting and, and get, you know, put them at the right angle. Because one thing's for sure, Josh, if you take all that time for all those, those little minute details, they do make a huge difference in the end. No, That's I how I think you found your success because yeah. I know you're, you've been beating that drum and beating that drum and so have I. And uh, little by little, you know, things happen. But I tell people it, it's a formula of years, it's not a formula of months. Yeah. If you invest years of time into social media, 
you're gonna get dividends. If you're just willing to, you know, one of those recipes for add water and stir, that's not this. Yeah, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Well, it, it, it's funny thing is that people think it is. You know, it's like when you take on clients, I've taken on clients and they're like, well, let's say I looked in three months and I just say, don't even hire us. Yeah, it's not enough time. Three months, people might, you know, know who, you know, a little bit of what you're trying to do. But the rule of thumb that I will tell you that we've come up with with our clients and we've, we've taught people, it's a year. Yeah. If you're out there a year consistently doing social media every day, if you're in business or branding every day, let me repeat that, every day, it's not I'm taking weekends off. You don't take weekends off. Yeah. You do it every day. In a year's time, you're going to see uh, very solid, good results. Yeah, social media is 24-7, 365 days a year. <laughs> yes, like it or not. But I will tell you what. For businesses that are trying to uh, evolve and trying to find, you know, that niche that has been escaping them, it's an amazing, amazing tool. Like you say, you can buy, you can still buy real estate on social media relatively inexpensively. Yeah. Go try to buy a billboard in, in a semi-busy part of town with good traffic and see how many thousands of dollars it costs you a month. Easy. 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 Three, four grand. Yeah. Easy. Yeah, and now on social media, if you come up with a product and you put some money behind it, you know, it's a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of money, but you're going to get, you know, 15,000 eyeballs on it. Uh, that, that ain't bad. Yeah, yeah. And it, helps, bad. it helps long term keeping that relationship going online. I find it fascinating. So, are you afraid of AI, artificial intelligence? Very. Why? Um, let me put it this way human intelligence is pretty crazy already, and we've struggled to handle our own intelligence or lack thereof and now we're creating an artificial intelligence that might work on pure logic and sometimes pure logic doesn't have emotion doesn't have feeling it doesn't have a it doesn't have soul yeah and i i don't like anything that doesn't have a soul because at the end of the day either you're fearful of god or you're fearful of your parents or you're fearful of authority or you're you're fearful of your own fears i don't think that artificial intelligence has has a fear of anything and i don't trust something that has no fear you got to be fearful. Like I'm, I'm, God, I'm a God. I'm a God-fearing Christian. I'm, a, I'm God-fearing of, of my God and, and my Lord and Savior, and that helps keep you in the straight and narrow. But when you don't have a fear of anything, and you're going to treat everything with a pragmatic, practical uh, solution, I, I think the humanity is lost. Yeah, that's an interesting take on it. Um, Elon Musk's Neuralink. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I've read some of it, not all of it. So Neuralink is his idea to to put. AI and humans together. They implant a chip into your head and you'll be able to download yeah, yeah. skills and upload memories and then it's a database of all that. Would you be somebody that would try that being now that you're in the digital landscape world, would you entertain that idea? Yes. Yeah. What, what do you think would, how do you think it would benefit you? Well, it's not how it would benefit me, it would how benefit the people come after me. Interesting. If, if you don't live, you don't leave a, a living, living legacy, it all gets lost. Let me tell you something. I, I am I'm most proud of the things I didn't say when I was in government because I had a lot of chance to say some stuff that that was correct but was hurtful. And uh, I am I'm also most proud of, of, of the experiences I've had that I may not get to share. And the experiences, Josh, that are most valuable to people are not my successes, are my failures. What didn't work? I tell people, don't tell, I'm not going to tell you it worked. I want to tell you it didn't work. Yeah. Now, if you want to use that, great. If you don't want to use it, that's fine. But what you talked about, the Neuralink with Elon Musk, where you mesh, you know, the human psyche with artificial intelligence, if we do it right, maybe that's the way that becomes an encyclopedia. And I know you're too young to use encyclopedias. I I've did. heard of them. 
uh, I used them, yeah. but they were the resource. And you'd go into them, they'd give you their book report if you wanted information. So how are future generations going to use us as a resource so they don't make the same mistakes we made? Because right. one thing's for sure, you know, history does repeat itself, but it doesn't have to, especially if it's bad history, if it's, if it's the Holocaust, or if it's, you know, the, the Hitler uh, experience, where we learned that humanity can be cruel and vicious, and we shouldn't forget those, those, those not so happy moments because our humanity might depend on it. So if you offer somebody like myself the chance to be a resource to future generations where they can go back to, well, you know what, I'm a, I'm, I'm a mayor of a small town. Let me see what this mayor did back then to try to help his community because, you know what, we're also poor and we're also disadvantaged and we're also struggling to try to grapple what government is. Right. Well, what about you picks in the button and you talk to a mayor that lived in, in the year, from the year 1963 to the year, you know, 20, 2045. Yeah. And all the experiences he had. Experience, you know what, is, is a, uh, it's an amazing, amazing tool if you have it available, but if you don't, you know, my father gave me a lot of his wisdom, whether I liked it or not, when I was growing up. And as I proceed in life, and as I, as I proceeded in government, I keep on going back to government because I'll tell you what, Josh, I, I did it with integrity and honesty and a lot, a lot of pride in, in community. And I never took anything that wasn't mine. But that goes to my, the values that my father taught me. Now, going back to what we were talking about before, you know, again, if you if we can become a resource, an encyclopedia, a, a living encyclopedia, where somebody can go and click a few buttons and, and find the deep experiences that you had, and they get to be able to help their community in a positive way, to give them clean water, to give them better public security, to give them a fire department, to go in and create a, a park system, to go in and even have a solid waste program. I'm telling you the experience that I had. When I came to Hurricane City, we didn't even have a system to go pick up your trash. Really? See, you see, you're surprised. It wasn't, yeah. you know, that's where we came on. It was a, it was a controversy. Are we going to allow our community to have somebody come in and pick up your trash? Mm. It was a controversy. Wow. One of those controversies is I said they're going to run me out on the rail because I went and hired a company that came, picked up the trash in an orderly manner, and that I, I unemployed, a, you know, those are like four or five vehicles around town that pick up the trash in the truck and stuff like that, and it became a controversy. So I go far enough back, 2001 when I came on, where there was no solid waste collection. Interesting. I, I guess now we just take that for granted. Like oh, yeah. You're going to pick it up. No, you see, you take it for granted. Yeah. I, I, I did not, and I never will. I, 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 like I Hats off to Mission Texas where I live because we they pick up my trash twice a week. How amazing is that? <laughs> you see, I'm, I was used to Edinburgh. Edinburgh is once a week. Mission is twice a week. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled, and I, I give them a, t a tip of the hat. But again, going back to what we're talking about, Let's be a resource, and if there's a way to bridge that gap to become a resource, you know, to give people insight into business or government or to podcasting yeah. or to social media, what better? Yeah. That, that, that shows the advancements of, of our humanity. No, I completely agree with you. Um, so before we leave here, in all your cumulative, cumulative years of, of experience, what is the best piece of advice that you can give somebody or anybody? Don't be timid. It doesn't matter what industry. It's easy. Don't be timid. Don't be timid. Don't don't uh, sit in the back of the room. Sit in the front uh, in front of the room. Uh, if you think you can roll with the big dogs, we'll give it a try. You know the fact that we're Hispanic or brown skinned, or that we you know may not speak English as good as the next person or Spanish for that matter. Don't be timid. You know we come from a community as rich in culture, 
And if anybody thinks that we're not prepared to hit the great big world, we are. And it goes back to confidence. Be confident and be be assertive in, in, in your in your presence in this world. Because I assure you that anybody else who's whether you're in television or radio or social media or whatever you want, the next person might be doing it better because they're not timid, they're confident, and they're consistent. Yeah. So I tell people all the time, don't be timid. You know, be, be, be brash, be bold, be gutsy, and get after it. Before we before we leave, I'll make sure people can find you in all of your channels. So can you share that with us? That's super easy. Uh, I am Border Mayor across all my social medias, B-O-D-E-R-M-A-Y-O-R. And that includes Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. They will find me. I, I uh, handle all my own social media accounts, and I will answer any direct message that's sent to me. Awesome. Ruben, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, I appreciate everything that you taught me, the insights, and uh, I look forward to seeing everything that you do in the future. Josh, a million thank you. Best of luck, and you keep on going after it, and don't be timid. I'll talk to you soon, bro. God bless. Welcome to the Joshua Morales Podcast.